Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. It's time for Sorallo Sports Talk with Joe Sorallo. Party started. Sorallo Sports Talk with me, Joe Sorallo, on your national airwaves for the next hour. We're going to get to it all. Last week in football, the craziness going on right now with the MLB playoffs, the upcoming game of the week, Bills Chiefs. I can't wait for that game. I'm just praying that the officiating doesn't ruin it after seeing two days in a row last week of some of the most obscene, disgusting, awful roughing the passer calls I've ever seen watching the NFL on Brady, on Derek Carr. I mean, absolutely ridiculous officiating in football, taking away a bit from some great games last week, some great comeback opportunities last week. We'll get to it all, but we're going to start with Odell Beckham Jr. Because just this morning, OBJ was spotted at the Buffalo Airport. And I've been saying it for weeks, if not months, going back to July, Odell Beckham Jr., needs to be a Buffalo Bill. Odell Beckham Jr. needs to follow his former teammate for the second half of last season, Von Miller, and go to Buffalo and go get a ring for the second straight year. OBJ in that Buffalo offense, my oh my, would that be scary. And oh, by the way, don't forget who else the Bills are looking at, who else the Bills just hit the phone lines to inquire about. Christian McCaffrey, Down in Carolina, Matt Rule out the door. How you doing? See you later. Steve Wilkes in. Panthers rebuilding. McCaffrey available. I mean, if the Buffalo Bills, and I don't want to jump the gun here and and sound too crazy or too excited, if the Buffalo Bills swung not only an OBJ signing, but a Christian McCaffrey trade, then wrap it up. Give them the Lombardi Trophy right now. But for now, the McCaffrey deal seems to be far off. They inquired. They hit the phone lines. That's it. OBJ is in Buffalo, and I think this is going to happen. I think that a wide receiver trio of Stephon Diggs, Gabe Davis, who had his coming out party last year in the postseason, and Odell Beckham Jr. would give Josh Allen one of the best wide receiver trios in the National Football League. I mean, we talk about what Joe Cool's got going on in Cincinnati with Jamar Chase, obviously, T. Higgins, who, by the way, is probably undoubtedly, indisputably, having the best year of those targets in Cincinnati. And then, of course, Tyler Boyd, who is just another consistent, underrated, you know, lays low, doesn't get the spotlight, catches the ball, good possession wide out. I mean, that's a really good trio in Cincinnati. Buffalo would exceed that. Buffalo would definitely exceed that. You saw what OBJ brought to the Rams, his presence in LA in that offensive system, a system that wasn't too far off from Buffalo's a year ago, a system that didn't have a lot of success running the ball, just simply didn't have a lot of talent in the backfield. You know, at times they show the committee, everyone coming into this year was high on Cam Akers, and we saw it out of the gate, opening night in the NFL. Cam Akers is not a clear-cut RB1 on that team, or even in this league. I mean, Daryl Henderson has gotten a large share of the carries for the LA Rams, and the Bills kind of have something similar cooking. You know that they've got no identity to their run game, right? I mean, Josh Allen's probably the best runner on the Buffalo Bills. Let's be honest here. Let's call it what it is. 
So you're looking at an offense that's pretty one-dimensional, but very creative in the pass game. They've got receivers like the Rams did last year that can, you know, do all these different things, can run these trick plays. Cooper Cup could throw the ball. Cooper Cup could come around on an end around, right? Bills have something similar. You know, Gabe Davis can be used on an end around. Odell can throw the ball. We've seen that going back to his giant days. I mean, Odell, I love Eli Manning. Eli Manning's the first ballot Hall of Famer. I'll defend Eli Manning until the day I die. There was a point at the end of Eli's career where Odell Beckham Jr. might have had the strongest arm of anyone on that Giants roster, right? So all of a sudden, Sean McDermott and company over in Buffalo, Ken Dorsey, breaking iPads or Surface tablets or whatever the hell that they're called, all of a sudden, they can get creative if you put Odell on this offense, more creative than they've already gotten. I mean, we've seen some creative looks for this Buffalo team. We saw some good looks, even though it's ironically their only loss of the year. We saw some good looks in that game against Miami where they were getting creative, where they were running little screen passes and, and you know, having uh, wide outs out in bunches and end arounds and whatnot. Buffalo with Odell Beckham Jr. is an even scarier offense than the offense that's already atop the league. Already the number one offense in the league overall. Already the number one passing offense in the league. In fact, they're the only passing offense in the National Football League that averages over 300 passing yards a game. And they don't just average 300 passing yards a game. They're up at 324. That's about a 35-yard differential from the next best passing offense in the NFL, right? And imagine them only getting better. You look at what Odell did. His impact on the Super Bowl champs a year ago. Got a touchdown in the Super Bowl. What did the Rams do? after they acquired Odell, after they picked him up after his fiasco in Cleveland, they went 9-3, and three, including the postseason, with Odell. And they dropped the first two games. Obviously, that first game against San Francisco, they got killed. Odell only had two or three targets, wasn't acclimated. Then they had the bye week. Then they lost that shootout in Green Bay where the Packers went up big early. The Rams crept back in. Odell had 80-plus yards and a touchdown, right? If anything, that, that Green Bay game, Because San Francisco, he just went straight from Cleveland to the Rams, didn't know the system, didn't know the playbook, had just three targets. Then they had their bye week. He was able to get acclimated. That Green Bay game, to me, marks the beginning of Odell's tenure with the Rams. And it was a shootout loss to a team that, you know, has has been the one seed in the NFC the past couple years, two years in a row. A team that is, or at least was, always a juggernaut with Rodgers and Adams this year. Maybe not so much. We'll get into that London beatdown that the Giants laid on Green Bay in the second half especially. But you look at that Green Bay game, from that point on, after that game, the Rams went 9-1 and down the stretch with Odell. He opened up the field in the absence of Robert Woods. Van Jefferson was out there also, and Van Jefferson's a guy who, you know, you could tell Matt Stafford's missing him a little bit. The Allen Robinson experiment hasn't worked. And last year, having Cup, Jefferson, and OBJ out there, that field was just spread so wide open for that Rams offense, and I think with the Bills, having a way better quarterback than the Rams had in Stafford, having Josh Allen, I think that the Buffalo Bills offense can be last year's Rams offense times five. I think that it can be just a 2.0 better version of the offense that won the Super Bowl a year ago. And the remarkable part is, that the Bills were my preseason Super Bowl pick, just like they were a lot of people. I'm not going to, you know, pretend like I'm the only guy on the Buffalo train here. But the Bills were the Super Bowl favorites without him. And the Bills have a great defense, top two in the league. They have the number one offense in the league. For that team to only get better, the thought of that, it's something I'm salivating over. And apparently, 
the Bills don't have as much competition as some people would like to think. Because a lot of people, if you were to say, what's the shortlist? Give me three teams that Odell is going to land with. It's probably, maybe some wishful thinking here, uh, for me and for other Giants fans thinking a reunion is going to happen. That's probably out of the picture. The top three are probably the Bills, the Packers, and then a Rams reunion. Well, Odell took to Twitter just this morning. In fact, tweeted at, replied to one of my fellow Believe uh, hosts, one of my fellow Believe colleagues, Jake Ellenbogen, who hosts the terrific Believe in Rams show. And Odell replied to Jake and said that he got no offer from the Rams this offseason. Jake, of course, he's the Rams host. He, you know, made it explicitly clear he'd love to see a reunion. And Odell said, yeah, you know, might have been in the works, but they never offered me a contract. And it's really interesting because in the offseason, you had Sean McVay out there in training camp, getting up to the podium at the press conference, saying, hey, Odell, what are you up to? Hey, Odell, what are you doing? Hey, Odell, you want to come back? And McVay's putting out that little, you know, public cute, hey, Odell, we miss you. And at the end of the day, there's no call from the front office. There's no pen to the paper. There's no contract saying, hey, Odell, we actually miss you, as opposed to just trying to look all cutesy on TV and on social media and in the press. So the Rams dropped the ball. I mean, that Allen Robinson signing, I'll be the first to admit it. I loved it when it happened. I've loved Allen Robinson going back to his college days at Penn State. He was the lone bright spot on offense for a lot of bad Bears teams with Trubisky slinging it to him and Dalton slinging it to him and Justin Fields running from it for his life behind that incapable offensive line trying to get rid of it. I mean, Allen Robinson was, was the only bright spot the Bears had of their starting 11 on offense for quite some time. He's been a disaster in Los Angeles. He's been MIA. There are, you know, in my new home of LA, there are missing person reports looking for Allen Robinson. I walk outside down the block and on the telephone poles, his picture is on every other telephone pole out here. Have you seen this man? Allen Robinson has been a non-factor for the Rams. And I have to imagine that they're kicking themselves wishing they had OBJ. We'll be back. We're going to switch things up, talk a little playoff baseball. Stick with me, Joe Sorallo. You're locked into Sorallo Sports Talk as part of the Believe Hour right here, right now. All right, back here on Sorallo Sports Talk with me, Joe Sorallo. A little football to start the show. We've got a little more football to get to. Some awful officiating. Big game. Game of the week. Chiefs, Bills will probably meet in the playoffs for the third straight year. Second AFC Championship game. At least that's my prediction. We'll get to that. But we've got to pay attention to what's going on on the diamond. The MLB playoffs are in full swing. Not something we usually say when each team's played just one game in the division series, but this year with the expansion, four wildcard series are in the books. The divisional series have begun. And man, oh man, is this gearing up to be one of the most exciting postseasons in MLB history. I mean, if that extra layer, that extra round of games didn't do it for you, how about all four games on day one of the divisional series, Jordan Alvarez. My man, Jordan Alvarez. I hit Houston with a four-unit play of the day, and when they were down seven to five, I took my butt and moseyed on down to the grocery store. I was running low on food, guys. Had to go fill up the fridge, and I came back to absolute madness. Jordan Alvarez sending the Astros home with a game one walk-off nuke, I could not feel any better following that game. And look, I love the Seattle Mariners. And let's talk about the Seattle Mariners. What they've done this season 
was absolutely incredible. Don't forget, they did not have a good first half. All of a sudden, June, July rolls around, and they kick it into second gear. Had a historic summer. I mean, not quite Billy Bean and the Oakland A's rattling off 20 in a row, but the Mariners, I mean, they, for over a month, had a winning percentage way over 90%. Just a historic summer from Seattle. 90 wins, first postseason appearance in 21 years since they set the modern record with 116 wins. I could not be happier for the Mariners and the season they had. Then they get to the playoffs. They go to Toronto in that 4-5 matchup. They win game one handily. Game two, the Jays jump out. 8-1 lead in the fifth inning, and the Mariners show no quit. That game summed up their entire season perfectly. End up winning that one, what, 10-9? Go into Houston, they're hot, and they, my oh my, they pounced on Justin Verlander. In the first inning, and you know it's funny, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sound too biased with this take, but you look at the hate that you know a guy like Max Scherzer got, right? And obviously, look, the Mets, the Mets crapped the bed. There's no way around it. You know, I've been the first one on social media out there, on Twitter, on Instagram, making reels, making videos. The Mets broke my heart. They had the second best regular season in franchise history, and this season just feels like an empty disappointment. They've got nothing to show for 101 wins because at the end of the day in September when they had 16 straight games against sub 500 opponents they went nine and seven when they had a home series with the Cubs they got swept when they had a crucial series in Atlanta where they just needed to win one game to essentially lock up the division they got swept so you know I've I've got no sympathy for the Mets it hurts it stings I love this team I always will love this team they blew it right but you look at a guy like Max Scherzer who's the ultimate competitor who was probably, after two separate IL stints this year, pitching a little hurt down the stretch. That oblique was definitely not ready to go, but he tried to tough it out, maybe to the detriment of his team, and he pitched in Atlanta, got shelled, pitched game one of the wildcard series against the Padres, got shelled, and he got killed. He got crushed across the world, across the media, across social media. Justin Verlander, where is where where's him getting crushed? I mean, I know the Astros won the game, but... That was no thanks to Justin Verlander. And he's far and away the Cy Young winner. In fact, I've been saying that obviously it's, you know, a two-man race between Aaron Judge and Shohei Otani. But why doesn't Justin Verlander, who's already won an MVP, I believe back in 2012 with Detroit, why isn't he getting MVP consideration this year? 18-4, and four, coming back from Tommy John surgery, 39 years old, a 1-7-4 ERA, one of the best ERAs in modern history. I think it's the second best ERA in the American League in the past 30 years. Only to Pedro, who I believe was 173, just a hundredth of a point lower than Verlander. I mean, you've got DeGrom, 170, Greinke, 166. Verlander, within a tenth of a point of all these guys, that's MVP consideration right there, in my opinion. Now, look, we've had the discussion, you know, when award season rolls around and maybe the news cycle's a little slower, we can break it down. My vote goes to Judge. Set the American League single season home run record. No disrespect to Shohei. He's one of one. He's a unicorn doing things no one's ever done. Not even Babe Ruth. But my vote goes to Judge. I just think Verlander deserves some consideration. That said, Verlander did not show up in the playoffs in game one. And game one matters way more in the divisional series than it does in the championship series or in the world series when you're in a best of seven. Best of five. Game one, especially when you're the home team, matters a ton. And Verlander blew it. Alvarez picked him up. Alvarez picked me and my wallet up. But Verlander blew it. Now, that was pretty unprecedented 
for Justin Verlander. And people can say, oh, you know, he's a postseason choker. No, no, no. Justin, Ver Justin Verlander is a World Series choker. If you look at the difference of how this guy performs in the postseason series by series, he's actually lights out in the divisional series. Going into yesterday's game, 8-1 and one in the divisional series. Of course, all the ALDS because he was with Detroit and Houston. 8-1 and one in the ALDS with a 2.5 career ERA. It's the World Series where he's never won a game. It's the World Series where he's got an ERA north of five. He's not a postseason choker. He's a World Series choker. But Verlander in the divisional series had been lights out up until turning in the worst start of his ALDS career coming off arguably the best season he's ever put together this year. It's, it's wild how playoff baseball is such a different animal. Take the regular season ball it up like a like a piece of paper and throw it in the trash can because when the playoffs come around none of it matters you know I, I always point to and this is you know a take that I use a lot as a Mets fan right I always point to the 2015 regular season where the Mets went 0-7 against the Cubs Mets were a division winner but only won 90 games Cubs were a wild card won 98 7-0 against the Mets in that 2015 regular season NLCS rolls around everyone oh the Mets this is where it ends they squeaked by the Dodgers in five Cubs are about to brutalize them Mets swept the Cubs for nothing in that NLCS in 2015, right? Whatever happens, take the regular season, throw it out the, out the window, because in the playoffs, everything starts anew. Unless, unless you're the San Diego Padres. The San Diego Padres, plain and simple, cannot compete with the Los Angeles Dodgers. I don't know what it is. It's clearly something beyond physical capabilities at this point, because the Dodgers have now following game one, and that game is set to... Start first pitch is in just about an hour. Game two, Clayton Kershaw, you Darvish. Kershaw, by the way, 5-0 and with a 1.5 ERA in his seven starts since returning from the injured list. And in his last nine postseason starts at home, he's 6-2 and with an ERA of two and a quarter. Clayton Kershaw has been nothing short of excellent. I, I mean, you know, he's. I feel like he's flying under the radar a bit as he gets older. And, you know, maybe it's because his stats don't jump out because... He's spending time in the IL, and he's not qualifying for ERA titles and whatnot. Clayton Kershaw, one of the lowest ERAs in baseball this year, just didn't have enough innings to qualify. Kind of like Max Scherzer, both sub-2-3 ERAs, both just shy of the 162 innings to qualify. Phenomenal season from Clayton Kershaw. Probably earned the right to be the Dodgers' Game 1 starter, but the, uh, but the Dodgers, smartly, are playing matchups. Using Urias, who, by the way, is probably going to be top two in the NL Cy Young Award voting this year. Using him Game 1 against Clevenger. Brilliant. Darvish, he's been the Padres' best pitcher lately. He's going to go up against Kershaw. Brilliant. Run your best out there against their best, whether you consider it Darvish or Musgrove, but Musgrove probably won't be available until uh, game four of the series. You're not going to wait that long to use Kershaw. So the matchup game by Dave Roberts here, he's playing it brilliantly. And there's just something about the Padres who have played the Dodgers 20 times now this year and only won five of those 20 matchups. I mean, this has been going on for years. You go back to 2020 playoffs, right? The expanded eight-team field, Dodgers, neutral field, quick work of the Padres, regular seasons every year. The San Diego Padres. Doesn't matter if you've got an MVP in Juan Soto or an MVP caliber player. I mean, you know, 2020 shortened season, it went to Freddie Freeman. Soto had an OBP of 490 for crying out loud, right? Doesn't matter if you got an MVP caliber player in Juan Soto, an MVP caliber player in Manny Machado right? Pop in the lineup, Will Myers, Brandon Drury, all-star Jake Cronenworth, Darvish on the bump, Musgrove on the bump with whatever the hell's on his ears. Doesn't matter for the San Diego Padres how much talent 
they have. Doesn't matter that they have an incredible manager in Bob Melvin, who was exactly what that team needed to get the fullest potential out of their talent. None of it matters because when they drive up the five and they come to Chavez Ravine or they stay in San Diego and host the Dodgers off that hour and a half road trip, they forget how to win baseball games. It's really remarkable. It is, I mean, and, and it's so contradictory of the playoffs being, you know, a fresh start and an even level playing field because with the Padres, maybe it's the close proximity. Maybe it's the rivalry. Maybe it's the hatred for each other. When the Padres have to face the Dodgers, they just, that little brother syndrome comes out every time. They cannot get the job done. Don't get me wrong. I sound like a Padres hater right now. I'm fully aware of that. I would love to see the Padres dethrone the Dodgers and and win this series and and unseat the 111-win Dodgers. I don't like the Dodgers. I don't like the Dodgers one bit. I would love San Diego to come out there and do it. They just can't. And it's not that I don't think they can. It's that I know they can't. I mean, maybe tonight off Kershaw, maybe they'll put one or two out. Will they be able to string together hits consecutively? I don't think so. But hey, I mean, that's baseball, right? The way baseball has been trending, the way this postseason has been going, it's not about stringing together hits. It's about putting them out. And maybe the Padres can do it. Machado certainly has done it in the past against Kershaw. You look at Soto, I believe he's just one for eight off Kershaw, but that one is a bomb. We'll see what happens in that game. But I've got no reason to believe the San Diego Padres can even take this series past four games against the Dodgers until they show me and the clock is ticking. They better show me soon. Last team I got to talk about. No disrespect to the Guardians and Yankees. I think, you know, Yankees have that one. That's wrapped up. It's, you know, I, I just don't think Cleveland can hit enough to keep up with the Yankees in that series, even though their pitching is fantastic and they have Bieber and McKenzie lined up. Last team I got to give a shout out to quickly is the Philadelphia Phillies. What a game one steal in Atlanta. That game obviously going on right now. Start was delayed due to some weather in Georgia. Shocker there. But the fighting Phils got swept by the Cubs in September. Here they are. Watch out. Stick with me, Joe Sorala. We're hitting the NFL again on the way out. All right, back here on Sorallo Sports Talk with me, Joe Sorallo, wrapping up this Believe Hour right here on your national airwaves. We've hit it all last week in the NFL, the MLB playoffs right now, full steam ahead. But how about the game of the week? Coming up in the National Football League, the Buffalo Bills, who I spent plenty of time talking about in the opening segment, headed to Arrowhead for the fourth time in their last five meetings. Of course, two of those playoff games that the Chiefs had home field in, Three of them, or now three of them, two of them prior, regular season matchups with Kansas City. And man, oh man, this game is, uh, first off, I don't know why it's not Sunday Night Football, why it hasn't been Sunday Night Football. You got the Denver Broncos. Four of their first six games on this season are going to be in prime time. Two Monday night, one Sunday night, one Thursday night. And we can't get a Bills-Chiefs primetime Sunday Night Football game. I mean... Are you kidding me? We got to get the Dallas Cowboys, Cooper Rush we have to sit through, Cowboys, Eagles. I know their combined record's 9-1, and one, better than the uh, Chiefs and Bills coming in at 8-2, and two, but there's no one here in their right mind disputing what the better game will be, what the better matchup will be, more important for television, what the more entertaining game will be. I mean, the Bills, Chiefs not being on Sunday Night Football in primetime for the world to see alone in a standalone time slot, it's borderline criminal. But this game is still going to be 
incredible. I can't wait. The Chiefs offense has not skipped a single beat. Tyreek who? Tyreek who? Travis Kelsey just had four touchdowns on Monday Night Football. Yeah, I don't care. He didn't crack the 30-yard mark. He had seven catches for four touchdowns. Juju's doing his job. Valdez Scantling already, to me, seems to be Patrick Mahomes' favorite wide receiver target. Of course, no one's ever going to intervene with that bromance that Mahomes and Kelsey have with each other. But Valdez Scantling, he has fit in in that system and that offense beautifully. And the Chiefs, that offense is just an absolute juggernaut. Still not as good as the Buffalo Bills offense. I mean, their overall offense ranks sixth. Their passing offense ranks fourth. They're nothing to scoff at. They have who I still believe to be the best quarterback in the planet. But Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills are the best team on the planet. They have the number one offense, like I mentioned earlier in the show, the number one passing offense, and it's by a lot. They have the number two defense, barely behind the San Francisco 49ers. The Buffalo Bills are the better team. They're the more complete team. And I think the deciding factor in this game for me is the Chiefs' passing defense. You know, the Kansas City Chiefs' defense came out early this year, and they looked great, right? We've seen in past years, we've seen a trend of Steve Spagnola defenses usually taking some time to gel, to mesh together, to click. Usually it happens about halfway through the season. They get hot in time for the playoffs. They're in a good groove, a good rhythm. This year, it's really been the opposite. I mean, they started really hot. Their defense started effectively, hitting quarterbacks, right? You saw it against the Cardinals. They were in Kyler Murray's grill all day. Chris Jones, Frank Clark, how you doing? Up close and personal. But on Monday night, Derek Carr and the Raiders torched the Kansas City secondary. And it's a secondary that I had a lot of concerns about coming into the year. They lost some valuable pieces. They lost the Honey Badger, most notably, of course. Went back to Louisiana. The Louisiana kid went to LSU playing for the Saints now. The Chiefs lost some secondary in the offseason. And early in the year, well, it's still early in the year, but very early in the year, the pass rush made up for it. Now, you go up against a team with a good offensive line, and all of a sudden, the secondary is going to get burned. And OBJ or not, I know he's in Buffalo right now, definitely not going to be suiting up for this one, OBJ or not, the Bills offense is still going to burn this Chiefs defense. I think it's going to be a fun game. I think it's going to be a somewhat close game. I think it's going to be in that 7 to 10 point range. I don't think Buffalo is going to do to them what they did to Pittsburgh by any stretch of the imagination. 38-3, Kenny Pickett, welcome to the league. You're playing with the big kids now. But I think Buffalo is going to win this one, I'll say by 7, which means that my favorite play on the board, I do not love the board this week. I'll be the first to admit that. My favorite play on the board this week is the Buffalo Bills minus two and a half. Even if you got to lay the 115, lay the 120 even, Bills minus two and a half. You wish you had it when they played the Ravens, when they were down 20 to three and they ended up winning that game by three and they were minus three. You wish you had the two and a half. If you got the two and a half, even if you have to lay the extra vig, take the two and a half on Buffalo. They went into Arrowhead last year, almost to the day, 367 days ago. And they beat the Kansas City Chiefs 38-20. And I'll tell you what, the game wasn't even that close. The game was not even that close that an 18-point margin of victory would indicate. The Bills are just superior on both sides of the ball. Offenses can go shot for shot, match for match, point for point. The defenses are different. And especially Buffalo this year. I mean, that D-line is just so much more versatile. I, if anything, didn't fully buy in to the defensive line coming into the year. And 
I, that they proved me wrong. That was evident night one against the Rams when they had seven sacks. Von Miller, Gregory Rousseau, Ed Oliver, of course. I mean, he's a guy who I feel like flies under the radar. Don't forget how bad this boy was in Houston and just how good he's been for the Buffalo Bills so far throughout his young NFL career rotating around the D-line. The Bills' depth on their defensive line, it's the kind of stuff that reminds me of the Super Bowl-winning Eagles, the Super Bowl-winning Giants. When you can rotate guys in and out, get fresh legs, exhaust opposing offensive linemen, that's the stuff that champions are made out of. This Bills' D-line really picking up the slack for an undermanned secondary. When healthy, a top secondary in football, right? Two Pro Bowl caliber, all Pro caliber safeties. Trey White, you can argue, best cornerback in the game, undoubtedly top five. But Trey White's on the shelf, just got cleared to return to practice finally. Still probably going to be out at least another week or two. Uh, Jordan Poyer, banged up. Micah Hyde on the IR, right? The Bills secondary, let's call it what it is here, folks. The Bills secondary is in shambles. But you couldn't tell watching them because that defensive line has been so damn destructive. It's been incredible. It's been so fun to watch. I think that's the ultimate deal breaker. Look, this Chiefs offensive line vastly improved from what it was a couple years ago when they went to the Super Bowl, lost to Tampa Bay. Mahomes was running for his life. I think he ran for damn near 500 yards behind the line of scrimmage in that Super Bowl. An unfathomable number, right? The offensive line's a lot better. I think it's still going to be overmatched just because of how good this Buffalo pass rush and how deep and how versatile this Buffalo pass rush is. It gives them a huge clear-cut advantage on the defensive side of the ball when you're dealing with two top-tier offenses. That's the difference maker. That's why I love the Bills. I think they're going to go into Arrowhead. It's going to be a fun game. I think it's going to be a bit of a shootout. Buffalo 31, Kansas City 24, Sunday's game of the day in Arrowhead. Now, before we get to my final word, before we wrap up this episode of Sorallo Sports Talk, because I'm going to use my final word to make you guys some money, just the same way I've been doing in the MLB. We've got a delayed game for the uh, Philadelphia Phillies and the Atlanta Braves. So I'm going to feed you a prop that I absolutely love for that one, a bet that I didn't think I was going to give you earlier when the show started. But now that the game looks like it's delayed, still might be time to get this one in. Before we do all that now, I've got to get to the officiating in the National Football League. These roughing the passer calls are absolutely disgraceful. I mean, it's not even a joke because a joke's supposed to be funny. And these are baffling, mind-boggling, disturbing. They have you watching a football game looking at, at no matter who you're rooting for, whether it helps or hurts your team, they've got you looking at the refs like, are you kidding me right now? I mean, these calls, the Tom Brady call against Atlanta on Sunday, give me a break. Saying he got thrown to the ground unnecessarily, he got wrapped up, spun around, and tackled. I mean, that's what you do when a quarterback's running the other way. It's pretty hard to, you know, I I don't know, ask him to, hey, if I tap you on the shoulder, can you please take a knee? You grab him around the waist, you bring him to the ground. And that's what Grady Jarrett did. And look, I'm not saying that the Atlanta Falcons go on to win the game. If there's no call there and, you know, they get the ball back. Look, a lot of question marks with Atlanta. At the end of the day, as much talent as the Falcons have, and I I do like that roster for the most part, but at the end of the day, it comes down to Marcus Mariota as their quarterback, and I'm not trusting him against the best front seven in football that Tampa Bay possesses to orchestrate a game-winning fourth-quarter drive. But that's besides the point. The point is Atlanta should have had a shot. That Atlanta had a clean sack on Tom Brady and should have had a shot to let Mariota go down the field and ultimately embarrass himself again. They didn't have that shot. 
because of the officiating. The Kansas City Chiefs a few weeks ago, and I'm going to get to the Chiefs-Raiders debacle Monday night. The Kansas City Chiefs a few weeks ago in their lone loss on the season, don't forget the Chiefs should be 5-0. It was an awful call, not a roughing the passer, but after Chris Jones sacked Matt Ryan on what eventually was the game-winning drive for the Colts, it was a, an excessive celebration personal foul that gave the Colts new life on what would have been 4th and 14 that gave them for, uh, an automatic first down, that gave them 15 yards when they would have been punting deep in their own territory. And ultimately, they orchestrated Matt Ryan, give him credit, eight-minute game-winning drive. And then Rodney McLeod, part of the Believe family, picks off Patrick Mahomes, and the rest is history, right? That should have never happened because Chris Jones sacked Matt Ryan and then celebrated like you normally would do with a potentially game-winning sack, and officials got in the way. And then you fast forward to another play involving Chris Jones. Monday night against the Raiders in Arrowhead, he sacks Derek Carr. Actually, before he sacks Derek Carr, he strips Derek Carr, gets the football. Chris Jones, on their way to the ground, is in possession of the football, lands on top of Derek Carr, and gets called for roughing the passer, gives the Raiders new life, gives them the first down. I mean, poor Chris Jones, poor NFL fans, poor, you know, poor everyone for having to put up with these officials. The officiating is absolutely disastrous. And we say this across all sports. We we say this every season, but it really is almost like it's getting worse and worse every year. It's unbearable. It's pathetic. The officiating in the National Football League right now and what they're doing to these quarterbacks. I mean, Troy Aikman, a former quarterback, I thought said it best. And Aikman's under a lot of heat and catching a lot of flack for saying the NFL next time they're in the committee room, you know, going over the rules, they need to take off the dresses. I mean, come on, people. Really? You're going you're gonna to kill Troy Aikman for that? It's, it's, not, it's not a sexist comment. It's a matter of the game's gone soft. This is a violent, physical game. If you can't do that. Go play soccer. This is football. And the game has gone soft. And it's the officials are really taken away. I mean, Chris Jones, like I said, how how can you call roughing the passer when Chris Jones had the football? Derek Carr, it wasn't even, it wasn't like he was in the pocket. He got sacked. Chris Jones stripped him, had the ball. As they're falling to the ground, he lands on top of Derek Carr. Such is life, such is football. Landed on top of him. If it was any of the other 21 guys on the field, no big deal, no harm, no foul. It's called a tackle. But if it's Derek Carr, if it's the quarterback, all of a sudden, the rules are going to change. And they shouldn't. I think Derek Carr will tell you that they shouldn't. Troy Aikman told you that they shouldn't. And I agree with Troy Aikman a thousand percent. It is a real problem with officiating that the league has to look at. When you have every analyst from every rival network, every competing media entity tweeting the words BS immediately after a play, well, you know that there's an issue there. Not too often in sports or in anything in life does everyone agree on an issue. And if you went to Twitter right after that that strip sack of Derek Carr by Chris Jones, the words BS, whether they were abbreviated or whether they were written out in full, were all over your timeline. Doesn't matter if it was Lewis Riddick, if it was Trey Wingo, if it was ESPN, if it was Fox Sports, if it was CBS, it doesn't matter Everyone was in full 1,000% agreement two days in a row with these officials that they are taking away from the game of football. It's awful. 
when we come back my final word is on its way i'm going to try to make you some money before first pitch with this phillies braves game if i'm too late to the punch i'll give you another bet too because that's just how generous i am stick with me joe sorallo you're locked into sorallo sports talk all right it's time for my final word here on this episode of sorallo sports talk episode 83 of the big show and let me spread the wealth. Let me be a little bit generous because after losing my first bet of the divisional series round, the Braves money line, I bounced back with a four unit play the day in the Astros and then a two unit play on the Dodgers because they own the Padres. Let's go back to the Braves Phillies game, but I'm not going to pick a side in this one. Let's go to a prop for the game that's been delayed because the weather in Georgia just stinks year round. There's rain nonstop year round. And this game that was supposed to be played at 4.30 Eastern now pushed back damn near 8 o'clock as we wrap up the show. Let's go Zach Wheeler. Over five and a half strikeouts. I can't believe how low this number is. Even odds. Zach Wheeler in his starts against the Braves as a member of the Philadelphia Phillies pitching staff is averaging 10.5 Ks per nine. He's gone over five and a half strikeouts against Atlanta in his last seven starts with the Phillies all coming against the Braves. Zach Wheeler is a strikeout machine to have this number against Atlanta, a team that struck out more than any national league squad in the regular season to have this number. So low at five and a half Atlanta, a team that struck out 12 times yesterday, a team that is the epitome of all or nothing baseball, home runner, strikeout baseball, five and a half for one of the more consistent dominant strikeout pitchers of the last three, four years in Major League Baseball, that is an absurdly low number. Factor in the emotional element. Zach Wheeler is a Georgia boy. Zach Wheeler grew up a Braves fan. Zach Wheeler always has a little extra juice, a little extra oomph on his stuff when he plays the Braves and when he plays them in Atlanta. This guy went six plus scoreless against St. Louis in the wild card round. His first taste of playoff baseball, remember 2015, he was injured, he was on the shelf when the Mets made their World Series run, Wheeler is going to come out roaring, zipping, and zooming against the Braves in this rain-delayed Game 2 of the NLDS. I love them, even odds, over 5.5. And And just in case you're getting to this a little late and you don't have time to put this bet in, let me give you one for tomorrow. The Guardians, Moneyline, as underdogs, roll with the Beebs, baby. He's done good things for me all year long. I think he's going to keep it rolling, keep the good times rolling for Cleveland in the Bronx, even that series up going back to the Midwest. So Zach Wheeler over five and a half Ks, Guardians, Moneyline tomorrow. And just like a Jordan Alvarez walk-off homer, this episode of Sorallo Sports Talk is up. It's over. It's out of here. Thanks for spending the hour with me on your national airwaves. I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.